Welcome to this season of the Unfinished Business Podcast. Over the next few weeks and months, I'll be discussing art directing for the web with my guests, who are some of the most experienced art directors and designers working on the web today. I'm your host, Andy Clark, and I'm writing a hard-boiled web design book about art directing for the web. And you can find out more about that at stuffandnonsense.co.uk slash books. Now, this season of Unfinished Business is proudly sponsored by Coffee Cup Software, and in particular, their new CSS Grid Builder. If you're the type of designer or developer that likes tools to do their dirty work for them, CSS Grid Builder might just be the thing for you. Now, you might have used what you see is what you get editors before, so you're probably remembering just how lousy the code they spat out was. But let me stop you there. CSS Grid Builder outputs excellent code. Browsers developer tools are getting better at inspecting grids, but CSS Grid Builder helps you build them, obviously. At its core, CSS Grid Builder is a Chromium-based browser that's wrapped in a user interface, so it runs on Mac OS and Windows. This means that if the browser can render it, CSS Grid Builder can write it. In fact, CSS Grid Builder builds more than just grids, and you can use it to create styles for backgrounds, including gradients, which is really handy, borders, typography. It even handles Flexbox and multi-column layouts. But designing a grid is the app's biggest draw, because when you're new to CSS Grid, visualizing how its columns and rows combine to form a layout can be one of the hardest parts of learning how it works. You create a grid, use sliders to preview the results at various breakpoints, and if you're one of those people who's worried about other people using incapable browsers, CSS Grid Builder also offers settings where you can configure fallbacks. Then just copy and paste CSS styles into somewhere else in your project, or you can export the whole kit and caboodle. Best of all, CSS Grid Builder is currently free. Yes, you heard that right. It's free while Coffee Cup Software develop it. And if you like what they're doing, you can throw the few dollars their way to help fund its development. You can find out more and download CSS Grid Builder at cssgrid.cc. On with the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Stephen. Hey. Thank you. Good to be here. This is the part of the podcast where we try to convince people that we just started talking. It's like, how are you? Well, I'm very well, thank you. And we haven't just been chuntering about other stuff for like the last 10 minutes. No, <laughs> definitely not. Well, no, we need, to, we need to present a professional outlook. You know, we need people to think that we are masters of our craft, <laughs> that yeah. we know what we're talking about. We do. I know that it's all an illusion. You know, it's all smoke and mirrors. But we don't want people to know that. We want them to look up to us. And Well, actually, maybe not. <laughs> hey. No, that'd be dangerous, I think. <laughs> hey, I tell you what we do need to do just before we start talking about the important stuff. Because we're going to talk about art direction because this is part of a series about art direction. But before we get onto the important stuff, Stephen, I just wanted to tell you about my coffee mug. Oh, this again. All right, go ahead. Tell me about it. Well, it can keep a cup of coffee hot for, well, you guess. You guess how long it can keep a cup of coffee hot for. Uh, probably like a, a whole day, right? Eight hours, 
No. You don't remember anything of that last podcast where we talked about my coffee cup for like 45 minutes, do you? I, I do. I just don't remember the exact amount of hours that it could keep your coffee hot. Well, you obviously didn't buy one on my recommendation, which I no. find deeply hurtful. <laughs> no, I didn't. You know, I was trying to be polite. Really, I don't want to say that I don't care, but I just, whenever I want coffee, I have fresh coffee. So, I, I go get fresh coffee. And if I don't have fresh coffee, then I just don't have coffee. <laughs> so, I can't see you right now, but I know that you're thinking, this guy's crazy, but... Yeah, I just don't want to carry one of those things around with me the whole time, you know. I did look at it on Amazon because you sent me the link and I looked and I thought, you know, it looks pretty interesting for people who like that sort of thing. <laughs> people who like that sort of thing. <laughs> what, like anoraks and those trousers that turn into shorts when you unzip the legs. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Do you have those? No. No, I, I don't. No, okay. Well, you, you don't have much then, do you? No, no. I, I'm just a pretty plain and simple person. <laughs> I have normal pants. You know, they don't do anything special. I uh, have normal coffee mugs. <laughs> I like a product that has a certain kind of, you know, embellishment to it. Okay, you know, well, it that's, makes you... that is interesting. Because what a lot of people in our industry talk about, you know, reducing things down to the simplest form. And yeah, I kind of like that. I actually think we, I have too much stuff in general. I'd like to get rid of a lot of stuff so that there's something about the whole minimalist thing that really appeals to me in some kind of way. I mean, not the minimalist fetishist, you know what I mean? Who are uh, counting how many pieces of, how many articles they have in their home. But I mean, just the idea of uh, physical stuff kind of clutters your mind as well. That kind of thing. So, if there are less embellishments, if the if like you have the the most basic form, but that form is is really beautiful in some way, I kind of like that. It's uh, mm. call me weird, call me weird. <laughs> well, you are weird. I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. Yeah. Uh. You, well, you invited it, but no, I I like stuff, and I, I'm not saying that you know I like my house to look like it comes from one of those terrible hoarders programs on the television. But, but you know, you know I do like it stuff. does, doesn't it? It does. No, it doesn't. I mean, I'm very <laughs> those neat. pictures you put those picture pictures you put online of your studio. You specifically model those, right? You set that up for the shot, and then, like on a normal day, does it look like that on a normal day? Well, no, it's, it's, it does look like that on a normal day because I do like a clean desk because a clean, tidy desk is a tidy mind. But I like stuff around me. You know, I'm sitting here with King Kong posters around the place. I've mm -hmm. got my collection of Godzilla action figures. <laughs> and, you know, I like stuff because, you know, stuff is stimulating. I mean, I don't know what's stimulating about Godzilla, but, you know, I, I like having stuff around. Anyway, we digress. People are going to start tuning out. They're going to start complaining again. Well, I don't, you know, compared to the last time that we talked, I think people won't complain as much. Because 45 minutes about a coffee mug is pretty heavy duty stuff. <laughs> We're not doing anything like that. It's a brilliant coffee mug and it can keep a cup of coffee hot for about four hours. Oh, four hours. All right. Yes. Okay. So I gave it too much credit, basically. Yeah, yeah, you, you were you were bigging it up. Yeah. 
Anyway, so um, since the last time I spoke to you, I think you've you've got a job, an actual job, not a pretend <laughs> job, but an actual job where they pay you money to like turn up every day. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I considered the job I had before an actual job as well. But yes, I have an employer. I'm a full-time employee. That's right. So I work at a, an online marketplace called Catawiki, which started as a platform for collectors. One of the founders collected comic books and he, he wanted a place to kind of keep track of his collection. And a lot of people who collect things like to keep track of their collections. So it started as uh, this kind of platform for collectors to uh, keep track and share their collections with other people, other enthusiasts. And then there was some interest, I guess, in, in selling and buying uh, from each other. And, and uh, they chose an auction, an auction-like model. So you could bid on things. And then the bidding started in 2011, I think, that auction model. And then uh, now it's kind of, it's not an auction house. It's an online marketplace that uses a kind of an auction model to for you to bid on things and buy them and you could sell them as well. And the idea is that these objects are somehow special. So it's not only for collectors, but it, they're generally not things that you could just find anywhere. So it's not auctioning like Christie's or Sotheby's. And it's also not, you could just put anything on there like eBay. And we've got over 200 category experts who curate what goes into these auctions. And the auctions are weekly. So you have, say, an affordable art auction. You have a, a modern art auction for art from the Netherlands and Belgium, and you have from other different parts of the world as well. There's a jewelry auction, watches, and then you're thinking about you know more watches that you just can't find everywhere that might not be available to you otherwise. Design, furniture, old books, comic books, posters. Godzilla action figures, perhaps? I think there might be some Godzilla action figures in there. If they're kind of rare or hard to find somehow, or somehow special, then uh, you could probably find them in there. Yeah. So we had, for example, one of the, I'm not sure if it was the very first uh, edition of uh, Tintin, the the comic, which got sold for, I believe, around 10,000 10, euro or something. So Whoa. these are, uh, it's, that's kind of an exception. Things are not going weekly for uh, 10,000 euro or 50,000, but you could get, you know, we have classic cars on there. It's actually uh, one of the things that attracted me to the platform is I thought it was uh, just a fun thing to do. I mean, normally I wouldn't be able to buy uh, a painting. I wouldn't know where to go. I'd have to go to like to Christie's and you know, I've been to Christie's before to feel what that experience is like. And that's crazy. I mean, your paintings are selling for like a uh, hundred thousand <laughs> and that's just totally out of my reach. But when you go to a platform like this and you can find something that interests you and, or that reminds you of something that you had years ago or whatever special means to you in whatever way, then, then you could find something interesting on there. I think there's something for everybody on there. And it's just a kind of fun way to buy these things as well. So how would you classify this then? Would you say that this is a transactional website? Would you call it a product? Yeah, it's a marketplace. It's a, it's a product. It's a marketplace product. So you could, I mean, if you want to categorize it, then it would be in the same transactional space as eBay, for example. 
Even though the whole idea, eBay doesn't curate and eBay has, you know, you could put pretty much whatever you want on eBay. But the transactions that happen, except for the the auction part, well, the auction part's a little bit different, but they're they're pretty similar transactionally otherwise. Okay. Because yeah. I'm always, always interested in this distinction between, you know, a transactional website and a product. And I suppose, you know, if you're if you're bidding on Christie's website, for example, does that mean that do Christie's have a product or is it a transactional website? I'm never, ever sure about what the distinction is. Well, yeah, I don't know if we need to, to create a distinction. I, we like to do that. Within the industry, we we love to classify as much as possible. But why can't a transactional website be a product? Is it a product once you have a native app? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, what? there you go. Yeah, I I mean, the, I don't the, know. I the don't, reason I don't know that we need it. The reason that I ask is that, as I think I've told you, I'm I'm writing this short book on art direction, and you know, I've got a couple of chapters in part two, which about art directing for, you know, marketing and transactions. And then there's another chapter, which I've, I've made the distinction, which is, you know, art directing for digital products. And, you know, you're kind of making me wonder whether or not those things are two separate chapters or whether they should be kind of grouped together really under, I don't know, interactions, user experiences, yeah, again, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the value is of, of the, that kind of classification. I think if you interact with something, you could say it's a product. Uh, what is a product? <laughs> yeah, if you have, a, if I go to the store and I buy an object, you know, you could say that's a product. If I buy shampoo, that's a product. If, if the thing that people use, that's your business. In this case, people use the platform. The platform is we have native apps. We have a website. It doesn't matter which you choose to, to use, but that is really our product. It's not the objects that are sold that's our product. It's actually the platform that enables this buying and selling that that is the product. You could probably say it's a product. And then we call it a product in any case. And the fact that it's transactional in nature or that you interact with it in a certain way, that's just happens to be a you know characteristic of the product so i i'm not even really sure i think netflix is a product right or is it yep uh well, or is it just a <laughs> you know what i mean so this is kind of a a weird definition rabbit hole right yeah i think sometimes we kind of enforce possibly false dichotomies on things um there's a couple of things that you just said which i think we should talk about at more length. I don't know in what order, but there's a couple of things that you talked about. Um, and I'll sort of preface it by saying that, you know, you and I have had many conversations online and off about art direction. And you've written articles about art direction in the past, which are, you know, often referenced when people talk about art direction on the web. They talk about posts that you've written and posts that Dan Maul has written, for example. So, and this series of podcasts is all about art direction and what it means and how it affects the work that we do, whether it's in product or 
on the web if you want to make that classification. But what's interesting about what you just said there, and we can, we can tackle this in, in, in a couple of different orders, is one is where art direction fits into product design. And the other thing which actually just came to mind as you were talking just then is about the fact that many businesses operate on different channels be it a you know a native app or a mobile website or a desktop app or a TV interface or whatever you know you think about Netflix as you know their promise is basically you can watch anything on anything whenever and I really want to talk about art direction in the context of possibly the gaining or, or creating a unified experience that goes right the way across all of these kind of channels. Does that sound like a plan? Sure. Yeah. Good. I'm glad <laughs> we agree on something. <laughs> so I don't know where you want to start. I mean, let's talk about the, the second part first. Let's talk about art direction in digital products because, you know, I've worked in the past with people who consider themselves to be product designers that have skills that go far deeper, far beyond what I consider my skills to be in terms of really designing things like kind of user flows, you know, focusing in on making it very simple for somebody to carry out whatever task it is that they want to carry out, you know, upload a PDF, download a PDF, do whatever they want to do. And I've never, ever considered myself a product designer. I've always wanted to, you know, be involved in communication more than anything else. But I work with people that consider themselves product designers. And often when we have conversations about art direction, and we I use the term art direction, it isn't something that resonates commonly with people that design digital products. And I find that interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. The whole enterprise is interesting uh, <laughs> as far as uh, product design goes. And even just the word product design in general within the context of, you know, the, the web is I even feel like the term product designer was kind of a backlash from the people who were like rebelling against the term UX designer, which is UX is so vague. And I, I'm head of UX, but that says nothing to 98% of people. <laughs> and those other 2% that do understand it, they still need a little bit of clarity about what, what the hell does that mean <laughs> within your context, right? But UX, because it's such an umbrella term of... Uh, Sometimes it's about actual skills you have, but sometimes it's just about, you know, the T-shaped designer who's focused uh, deeply in one area and has, you know, also dabbles in behavioral psychology and information architecture and that kind of thing. And then you have the problem is you don't know where the, the vertical part of the T is. You always have to ask. And I think that people had the idea that product designer, I don't know, I think some people think it just sounds better, sounds more important you're making that thing as opposed to you're sketching wireframes and, and doing a lot of, you know, hanging up a lot of post-it notes about that thing. <laughs> I've never met a product designer who's doing anything different than the people that I know who call themselves UX designers. They, they do essentially the same thing. And I'm, I'm sure that's not the case everywhere, but literally everyone that I've ever seen who calls themselves UX designer and people who call themselves product designer, they do essentially the same things. So 
I think the term is just kind of awkward. I think the attempt was to get a term that's a little bit clearer and it failed. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's just my opinion. But when someone says product designer, I still have no idea what they mean. I have to ask them, what, what does your day look like? You know, what do you touch? How do you work with people within various teams? How do you deal with stakeholders? Uh, the whole thing I have to ask. So with product design, art direction is a little bit hard to to give. What is that within the context of product design? I think that it overlaps with this idea of user experience, at least in the in the Don Norman sense. I think we've talked about this before. Uh, user experience being like the entire thing from A to Z, right? Yeah, and it's interesting. I, in preparation for this conversation, and bloody hell, people aren't going to believe that I actually do prepare sometimes for <laughs> these conversations. I'm surprised. Um, I, yeah, I'm surprised. Now, so I actually asked a question of Twitter yesterday, and I asked, does Art Direction have a place when making digital products? And I've got two of the first replies here, one from David Perel. Hey, David, who says... Once the user experience has been designed, then I think there's a place for art direction. And then literally next to that in my timeline is a, a reply from uh, Marco Pisani. Hi, Marco. And he said, art direction is fundamental to UX. It's about the art of setting the right expectations and supporting the product with meaningful visual communication and messages. How the user feels by using a product makes the difference between good experiences and great experiences. I think so that's we have, really you know, well formulated. Two, yeah. two tweets, both with a very kind of different view. I, I wonder, you know, we, as we sort of, you know, get deeper into this kind of UX or product design era, whether or not, you know, art direction is something that we, you know, we need to clarify. Because to me, if we're thinking about, you know, the sort of stuff that I would talk about with Mark Porter or you normally or Dan Maul, it's all about extracting meaning and making somebody feel a certain way when they read a piece of editorial or they see an ad, for example. And I am, you know, I'm wondering, you know, part of the pondering that I'm doing for this series of podcasts and for the book is, Trying to trying to find ways of actually clarifying this idea that what we're doing is we're making people feel in a certain way often. Yeah, it's a combination, I think, of trying to elicit a certain feeling, but there's a goal behind it as well. Uh, generally, in print art direction, you're trying to find a way to communicate more effectively by kind of opening that door to the feelings. When you do that, people can relate to something, your message a lot better, a lot easier. So they can, they recognize something in there. There's some kind of recognition that happens when you, or, or not, right? But the, the thing is that you'll appeal to people by creating something that, that matches some part of their experience that they can relate to. And that is much stronger than just say, here's a product. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm just and, and, sorry, listeners, but you know, this podcast is not just Andy reading out people's tweets in his timeline. But there are some real gems here. Marco, that I mentioned a minute ago, goes on to say Airbnb is the best example of this. 
After the rebranding, they focused on being consistent with the message and every single pixel of their digital products screams, with us, you'll have the best time of your life. So thanks to Art Direction, they sell experiences and not rooms. This guy's good. Yeah, that's a good description as well. I think I really like that. Yeah, and actually the the tweets you had before, I think uh, as well. The especially the second one that that kind of hit home for me. The I think Airbnb that okay. So now you get into this thing where the digital products are hard, complex, big things. You've got companies with lots and lots of people, and it's really hard to get something something done well like that. I actually think I think Netflix does a lot of things really well. I think Spotify does a lot of things really well. And I can't say that there's necessarily a story behind each of these, but I I know that good art direction always has a story. And even if you can't see what the story's not literally brought to you, uh, like here, we're going to explain to you this story. It's kind of an undertone. It's like subtext. You feel it somehow. And I think that that's what makes one product completely different than another product. So you have a lot of products that are kind of the same. I don't just mean visually, but they just feel kind of the same. You have that with plain old informational websites, blogs, whatever. You can see what things have a story behind them where people were actually thinking about that and which don't. And what we don't see, unfortunately, is the struggles that people have. And there there might be some good stories to build a complete experience on that for technical reasons, for political reasons, money reasons, whatever reasons you might have, that these aren't able to come to fruition or they take a long time to do so. So I, I think that any designer that you talk to on any product that's trying to do something, achieve something with art direction, probably doesn't feel like they're done yet. They feel like they're only getting started. Yeah, no, it's really coincidental that Marco brought this up on Twitter, this Airbnb example, because only this week I've been working on some kind of visual identity positioning for the company that I'm working with now. And Airbnb was one of our kind of top examples. And the reason for that was because, you know, whereas, for example, there's this kind of, and I think Koivin talked about this recently, this kind of monoculture of visual identities in tech products where, you know, all of the illustration tends to look the same. One of the things that I found inspiring about Airbnb, and I think Uber is another great example of this, is that, you know, they are selling the weekend in San Francisco or the they're selling the, the festival or whatever. Uh, they're not selling just the room. And it's about kind of, I don't know, nailing that promise and communicating that. But the trick the trick, I think, and I'm trying to get my head around this, is how you then kind of take that message all the way down into the small aspects of design, you know, be it the style of an icon or possibly you know, the language that's used on a label, you know, the tone of voice, for example. So I, I find these bigger examples of product to be really fascinating. 
Yeah, it, what's even more fascinating is how they've been able to do it. And generally, it's because of the importance that the organization places on design. And when I say design, I mean that in the broadest sense, which would include art direction in this case. But that uh, Airbnb, I mean, it's no secret that design is, is super important <laughs> from the founders down. You see at Netflix, I, I believe they have a design engineer ratio of one to three. <laughs> so there are companies that find design to be very important. And those companies tend to be the ones that other companies or product designers will look at and say, I mean, how many people have you met who use Airbnb as an example of something? That, I mean, even if it doesn't apply, they're using Airbnb <laughs> as an example. So the Airbnb is kind of the go-to look what they did, you know, and they're doing lots of great things. And that's because design is so important in the organization. So that's a big thing as well. My final tweet read <laughs> comes from, gosh, and I've not seen this guy for probably a decade, but Keith Robinson, who is now, I don't know whether you ever met D. Keith Robinson, but he's now a designer over at uh, Atlassian in the States. They're a, oh, okay. a Sydney-based company, but he's actually working for them in the States. And uh, his reply to my question was, yes, I think art direction is especially important for things like signups and onboarding, the handoff between marketing and product. And I'd also add empty and intro states, visual feedback and animation, moments of delight and even error messaging. So this is one of the things that I've been sort of wrestling with work-wise is where we can do two things. One, where we can kind of inject the brand personality. We can art direct that brand personality and kind of get that into the product. And then the second part I want to talk about in a minute, which is those kind of, you know, moments of delight or, or kind of, you know, micro interactions or whatever. But do you think he's right? I mean, does the art direction stop at the onboarding or at the product tour or does it go deeper than that? I, well, I think it often does stop there, but I think it should go deeper than that. I think it should permeate through everything. There should be a completely congruent experience. So that it's kind of awkward to have this uh, well art directed onboarding and then come into the product and think this is a <laughs> you know what the hell is going on here. So and that happens a lot, and there are many reasons for it. But if well, you give really me an example of what that disconnect might look like. Okay. Well, I don't have right now at the top of my mind a, an actual real world example, but there are sometimes you have these great marketing campaigns. It's like you use this product and you, you know, you see all these, these images and they give you this visually well-designed kind of, this is a great platform and, and you can, it'll change your life or whatever. And then you log in and it uh, ends up being this, um, uh, like it was built by a completely different company, you know, so that then you really know there's this disconnect between marketing and the, the marketing design and or the onboarding design and, and what happens uh, beyond that, which is looks like it was built by engineers. So that kind of thing I've seen before, and I don't really have an example of that top of mind, but I'm, I'm sure you've seen things like that where you felt this disconnect. It felt like there's the outside of the house was very pretty. It looks beautiful. And then you go inside and it's, it's all old and ripped up or 
I don't know. So I've seen that kind of thing before. And that's where you can kind of feel that within the organization, they feel like the actual meat of the product, that's a developer thing. And the marketing stuff, making it look pretty, it's, it's kind of like the what I've talked about for many years, that idea that many people have that designers are there to make things look pretty and, you know, don't touch our part of the product or whatever. So it doesn't feel right. You've, yeah, it's, there's just this disconnect. It's almost like two products in a sense. I can think of a couple of kind of almost like visual examples and they are, I don't know whether we think of these as being design examples or art direction examples, but I'm always very fastidious about balancing really simple things, you know, really simple things like the weight or thickness of a line, I often will take as either a mirror or a proportion of, for example, the stroke width in a, in a typeface. I would look at, for example, you know, the style or the color of um, shadows or something like that being echoed in things like illustrations that we might use, you know, in other places. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it also comes down to even those kind of small things, you know, those small kind of animations or transitions mm -hmm. that, you know, you might commonly see on you know, the marketing side of, of a business, but may or may not have been translated into into product. So I think that there are sort of, you know, very sort of simple, low-hanging fruit there that can help people create much more of a kind of a, a unified feel to it. Yeah. Um, you know what? I'm going to ask you to Google something. <laughs> if you Google my name and uh, design funnel, then you'll probably come across an article that I wrote, uh, a little bit that I wrote many years ago, which has a funnel, right? So <laughs> the idea is salespeople have a funnel, so we designers should also have a funnel. And kind of describes that process of going from a these values, you know, these vague abstract values and goals that you might have as an organization, and then moving down this funnel to forming a visual language which leads to what people call the design. And I've talked with Jeremy Keith about that because he saw one of the presentations where I, where I talked about the funnel. And I'm actually thinking of changing the last thing, the last part of the funnel to from design to define. I thought that was uh, an interesting suggestion of his. But this idea that the visual language is pretty far down the funnel. So before you get there, there you have these values and goals and then you – you can come up with metaphors or stories or things that you feel reflect those values and goals. And then you would have, say, moods. And then you'd have metaphors or, or stories that would reflect those moods that would in turn reflect the values and goals. And only then would you start working on a visual language which reflects those metaphors or stories which in turn reflect uh, et cetera, et cetera. And once you have that visual language, you're putting something together that that kind of has that feeling that you want trickling down through all the little bits of it. And I think that a lot of designers today, they jump right in at the visual language part and they grasp onto things like the little tricks we have. Like you mentioned a couple of those little tricks, like taking a proportion of the typeface, you know, but, and then the, which typeface are you using and why are you using it? How do you come to that conclusion? And those things are sometimes done 
uh, really, really well. And sometimes they're done at a very surface level. So it's a fun site, you know, it's fun and, and happy let's, and fluffy. Let's use Comic Sans, you know, or which as Mark Bolton has said, is not a bad typeface, <laughs> you know, people get down on Comic Sans, but how did you reach these conclusions? So the same questions that you would ask yourself about larger questions about a, a project uh, in general these are questions that you can ask about all these little decisions that you've made about your visual language. And you'll find that many designers don't either have the opportunity within their work environment or just don't do those important steps beforehand of, of uh, I think that's the difference between an art director and a designer in that sense is that the art director is really focusing on what comes before that visual language, what what's got to be kind of the the lifeblood that runs through every limb, you know, of this product. So I think that's really important. And I know storytelling is like a, a trendy thing now. It's kind of um, like the, the floating buttons of 2000, right? <laughs> I hesitate to call it storytelling because it's not always a story. Sometimes it's more abstract than that. Sometimes it's just a feeling. When I talk at work about what I'd like to do and you know, anything in a larger organization that's growing pretty quick, it takes a long time to realize. And, you know, I haven't been here all that long. But when I talk about the relationship between people and things and what makes an object special, what makes a thing special, well, you could tell me why your King Kong poster is special to you, but I can't use that particular thing as a blanket story to tell everybody. But I can collect a bunch of these stories and then figure out a way to to put that story throughout the product. So when you go through the website or the app that you get this feeling like I can find something that that gives me that special feeling that that King Kong poster has or so storytelling is kind of a that trendy term but I feel that sometimes it's about a story, sometimes it's about a feeling and these things are really hard to get across. So you almost have to test your all your metaphors, all your your little ways that you can think of, of, of describing this or portraying this uh, idea that you have and then test it and say, okay, if, if I show you like these colors or these, well, the, you know what Dan, what Dan Mall does with the, um, with his, what does he call them again? Where he has little, they're not style tiles. No, they're, they're not they're style tiles, but he's a got similar ilk. Yeah, I forget the name. I forget what he calls them. But that's kind of the thing what you'll do. You'll start trying things out. It's almost like you'll kind of gravitate from the the larger mood board type things down to these things where you're you're showing elements and you're testing to see if they elicit the same type of feeling that you want to have. And yeah, I think when you carry that through that's good art direction. And it does, uh, like one of your tweeters had mentioned, that's what makes the difference between a good product and a great product. A good product can look good. You know, it's, it, it's formally well-designed from a visual standpoint, but a great product will have this, it'll elicit these feelings that they want you to have or that attract you to the product in the first place. And that'll carry through the entire experience. I think there's a company here in the, the you know, do you know Cool Blue? No, I don't. Okay. So there's a company called Cool Blue and that you can buy like household appliances and computers and you know that kind of thing, electronics or whatever. And 
they've made this thing about customer support. That's like their big thing. We're, we're totally there for the customer. And uh, it's all about people in that sense. So you get a real person coming to the house and they'll install your washing machine for you. And you have to be completely happy with everything. So they, you get a little, you open the box and they, you get this little uh, thank you note. You know, <laughs> They do that really, really well. And they're well known for the service. So the, the people and how that relates to service, that's kind of the way they decided to that's the main thing that they decided to run with. They seem to do that pretty well. And that's kind of their mm. main driver is customer service. It's interesting. The I cannot believe that I've known you all these years and we've spoken so many times. And yet I have not come across this design funnel article that you wrote goodness knows when. Yeah, when I was a lot younger. <laughs> yes, well, that happens to all of us, darling. Um, but I think I'm looking at the, I'm looking at you know the third section down of the introduction of this article, and I think that you have inadvertently nailed the answer to the question that you know perhaps I loosely posed earlier on about creating these kind of well-considered, well-art-directed experiences that cross different channels or different products or different formats or whatever. And it's interesting you talking about you know, jumping straight into that kind of creating a, you know, a visual language level. But looking at your steps here, you know, define values and goals, discover moods and metaphors through association, generate ideas, define a concept, then you create the visual language. And once you've done that, then you can get on with the actual job of design. And as I think Dan said in his article, you know, do the fonts and the colors match? You know, is it, does it feel like a balanced layout, the, the design aspects of it? And looking at this list, I think that it's it's this definition of defining the values and goals and then expressing those through the the feeling that you want to convey to somebody you know you you put here you know discovering moods and metaphors but actually that section could actually be about how you want somebody to feel that could be the glue that sticks all of these different devices or formats or channels together because having defined those values and that goal that's going to inform every aspect of design and that means that the design of what you put on a small screen or a mobile screen or in a native app or on a tv or whatever it's not going to be superficial you know everything is going to come back to those values and those goals right right do you know stripe the payment Yes. Provider. Yeah. Yes, I do. I've never used it, but I, I obviously know of it. Yeah, we we use Stripe, and since very recently, and the, one of the things that I personally like about Stripe is they don't have this story, right? This lofty story, but that you can tell that their whole premise is making payment easy, right? Easy, and the whole uh, you know there were articles uh, <laughs> about this. Uh, well, there were a lot of tweets about this article where you saw like little bits of really bad HTML, and that was the seven lines of code that they once wrote and turned into like a billion dollar company or whatever. So, th what they did was they wanted to make it easy in, in the first place to include payments, like to make payment possible in your website by adding seven lines of code. 
and they weren't seven lines of bad HTML, by the way, but literally you could put these lines of code in your site and now you have payment in your site. So the idea was let's make payment really, really easy. But that one thing trickles down through everything they have. The, since we've had, you know, we're using them. So I at times had to go into their documentation. It trickles through to their documentation. It trickles through to the people uh, that we have contact with at Stripe who actually, you know, were helping us out. And it trickles through everything. This idea of uh, we're making payment really easy. And the micro interactions that you referred to, Val Head has talked about in uh, several of her talks where you, uh, you know, these little delightful things that happen and they're tiny little sliding things and whatever. They're, they don't bother you. You don't think about them, but they contribute to this idea of uh, this is really easy. It's going really quickly. It feels nice. Just the subtle colors, you know, the the way, the the size of the fields, everything they do seems to to like lead back up to that idea of making payment really easy. And I think they do a really good job of that. And to me, that's kind of the type of art direction that really works well on a product. And it doesn't need to be some story. I don't have to start crying because I'm using Stripe, <laughs> you know, it doesn't need to elicit all these emotions, but I need to have that feeling that this feels right. It feels easy to use. And they're true to their statements about uh, making payment easier. I think that's good art direction. I and mean, one of the things that came up when we ran a, uh, a design principles workshop recently was that one of those principles was going to be bold. And that means that, you know, we can often be provocative, for example, in messaging and perhaps in, you know, some of the ways in which you visualize something. But one of the other design principles was reassuring. And I haven't actually really seen that come up. You know, there's a lot of examples of design principles knocking around. And I thought that that was a very interesting one that was almost kind of quite difficult to visualize from a design point of view. You know, you can talk about, I don't know, softer colors or lower contrast or something like that. But actually the reassurance, I think, in the context that you're talking about comes through, I can see this thing secure, things are moving quickly, my file uploaded very quickly. I can see the preview, there's a, an empty state that gets filled in progressively or however that might work. I mean, I was actually on noodling with uh, with YouTube earlier on and I was on a 3G connection and, you know, there were no videos loading at that point, but the background, which was that kind of greeked out, you know, rectangles and greeked out text was very, very subtly pulsating mm -hmm. as if I'm just telling you that something's happening. Yes, I'm not setting the wrong expectations by giving you a loading screen that tells you that it's going to be loaded in, you know, 15 minutes. But I'm just telling you very subtly that this screen has not crashed. You know, you don't need to restart YouTube app to, you know, to make sure this thing's working. Yeah. And that's where the kind of the reassurance thing comes in. And that's, I think, when, you know, if we're thinking about defining what these goals are, then... I think that's, unless I'm mistaken, that's at the kind of the design principles level, would you say? Yeah, I do. And I think reassurance is, or any term that you can find, I mean, you have reassurance and, and you can come up with any number of terms that you feel are relevant to your product, but something like reassurance, to take your example, 
it's different depending on what your platform is, right? So when you go to Netflix, what does reassurance mean to you as a customer within a context of Netflix? Well, I don't use Netflix. Okay. Well, do you use any kind of video like watching thing, service, product? Yeah, well, I, I watch Amazon Prime video occasionally. Okay. Does the same thing apply to music? Does it apply to my you know, Apple Music subscription? Yeah, or does it apply? Is it the same type of reassurance when you're booking a flight or a hotel? It's completely no, different. It's, a, it's completely different. Yeah, so the things, the, the tactics you would use at a lower level to provide that reassurance would differ completely. And that's also part of that, that real thinking where you're not just trying to you didn't just see something about making nice little micro interactions and animations and you're trying to apply that to your product. You're, you're actually thinking about what's important to the customer at this point in time. You know, if I'm booking a flight, other things are very important to me uh, that I need to be reassured about. And that's where all your effort could go into making those things as, as reassuring as possible. And that would be completely different for Netflix and completely different for your music collection, whatever that might be, Spotify or, you know, wherever you uh, listen to music. When I'm watching something, I kind of, uh, my I'm worried about, is this going to, am I going to be able to watch this thing? Is the connection going to be okay? Am I going to be able to watch it without yeah, am constantly Am I going to be able to watch buffering? this all the way through? Right. Exactly. Is it going to cut out? And that's not a real serious problem, but if I'm... If I'm making a payment, uh, booking a flight to say Australia, it's going to cost me, you know, a lot of money, and then s- I need to know something's happening. I need to know the payment's uh, secure. I need to feel like I can trust the site. How do you communicate all these things at, at many, many different levels? So, all the things that we've always talked about and heard about in articles, books, conferences, performance, but also these little uh, tiny design design things. Where are you telling someone that the payment's secure? How are you telling them that? Uh, how are you making them feel that? That's what makes it a fun, <laughs> a fun field to work in, I think, is when you can at least work toward that kind of thing. Because I don't think we're ever really there. I kind of envy the, the companies that at least everyone thinks they're there, like Airbnb. But I can guarantee you, even though I know at this point right now, I don't know anyone I think personally who works at Airbnb, but I can almost guarantee you that they don't feel like they're there yet. And they're, the designers, as talented as they are, are probably looking for ways to make it even better. That's just my assumption in general. But most designers that I know or have met always think they can do a better job and they're they're just constantly working to improve things. And maybe what we all aspire to do is move toward real art direction, which makes design meaningful, I think. I cannot think of a better place to end it. So thanks. Thanks so much for spending this last hour with me. Yeah, well, thank you for having me.